Samuel was the first, but there were many to follow who kept the kings spiritually in line. They were burrs under the saddle of Israel's kings, reminding them that they were not autonomous, that they lived and ruled under God. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in South Lake, Texas. I'm Bill Wright, and Tom is continuing his current series with part four of An Aerial View of the Old Testament. So far, we've looked at four of nine great movements in the Old Testament. Last time, we examined in greater depth the fourth great movement and how God provided Israel with two main systems required for holy living and right relationship with Him, the sacrificial system and the Mosaic law. Today, Tom will delve into how believers are to reflect upon and consider these two systems today and how God sovereignly dealt with His people when they disregarded and despised His law. Let's join Tom right now with today's message on The Word Unleashed. After a year, Israel leaves Sinai in Numbers chapter 10, verse 11. They've been at Sinai from Exodus 19 all the way through Exodus, all the way through Leviticus, and to Numbers chapter 10, verse 11. At that point, they pick up camp and they leave. The glory cloud that manifestation of God's glory, that brilliant blazing light by day, cloud and a pillar of fire by night that leads the nation from Sinai down in the south end of the, the, you see the lower arrow here marking the area where Mount Sinai is, up to where you see the upper arrow at the edge of the promised land, at the edge of Canaan. And you remember that 10, or excuse me, 12 spies are sent into the land to spy it out, to see exactly what needs to be done to capture it. Remember that God himself had spoken to these people. God himself had brought them out of Egypt with a strong arm, with all the plagues that he poured out on the land. God himself had promised them this land. He had promised Abraham this land hundreds of years before. And now they come to take the land, and 12 men go in to spy it out. And here's what they came back with. There were two reports. There was a minority report, and there was a majority report. Joshua and Caleb, the minority, the two of the 12 spies, came back and they said, the land is fruitful. The majority report, the other 10, said the land devours its owners. Joshua and Caleb said, the people are strong. The majority report said, the people are stronger than us. Joshua and Caleb said, some of them are big. The majority report said, all of them are big. The minority report said, the Anakim are there. The majority report said, the Nephilim are there. So where did they end? Joshua and Caleb said, let us go up now. But the majority report said, we are not able to go up. Imagine seeing what they saw and refusing to believe that God could defeat the people of Canaan. I'm afraid our faith is often every bit as weak. Turn to Numbers chapter 14. I want you to see the interchange on this one. Numbers chapter 14, verse 1. After the report, chapter 14, verse 1 says, Then all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. Why would they be weeping? 
Well, read on. All the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is Yahweh bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? We came all this way just to be killed in battle. Our wives and our little ones will become plunder. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, let us appoint a leader and return to Egypt. Moses and Aaron fell on their faces in the presence of all the assembly of the congregation of the sons of Israel. Joshua and Caleb tore their clothes. They spoke to the congregation saying, the land which we passed through to spy out, it's a good land. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will bring us into this land. He will give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Don't rebel against the Lord and don't fear the people of the land for they will be our prey. Their protection has been removed from them and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. But all the congregation said to stone them with stones. And then God shows up. Then the glory of the Lord appeared in the tent of the meeting to all the sons of Israel. The Lord said to Moses, how long will this people spurn me? How long will they not believe in me? Despite all the signs which I have performed in their midst, I will smite them with pestilence and dispossess them, and I will make you into a nation greater and mightier than they. Moses, always concerned about God's glory, says, Lord, if you do that, the Egyptians will hear, and they will say, that you weren't able to do what you said you would do. If you slay, verse 15, if you slay this people as one man, then the nations who have heard of your fame will say, because the Lord could not bring this people into the land which he promised them by oath, therefore he slaughtered them in the wilderness. And he recites what he learned about God's character. And he says, pardon them. And the Lord says, all right, I'll do that. But let, let it be known that all of those older than 20 except Joshua and Caleb and you, will die. And of course, Moses also was not able to go into the promised land, but he survived to the edge. So, 40 years of wilderness wanderings. This is a picture of where that generation died. They lived and died over a 40-year period, everybody older than 20, because they would not believe God. All of them except Joshua and Caleb And then Moses leads a new generation to the edge of Jordan. On the east side of Jordan, opposite Jericho, the border of Canaan, there he conquers the kings of the Transjordan, and over a two-month period in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses reconfirms the covenant with that new generation, those 20 and younger, when the incident I just read to you occurred. Moses reconfirms God's covenant, his law. He views Canaan from a distance, and then he dies. And that's Deuteronomy. What are the lessons from the wilderness wandering from us? The New Testament uses it in two ways. One, to warn us of the danger of accommodating sin in 1 Corinthians 10, 1 to 12. And in Hebrews chapter 3 through, through chapter 4, the danger of unbelief. Believe God. Now that brings us to the fifth of the major movements in Old Testament history, the conquest and division of Canaan. It's the book of Joshua. Joshua was the author of this book. The theme is the conquest and division of the land. They enter the land. They conquer the promised land. They divide it up. And then the last two chapters are the final charge of Joshua before his death. Why is Joshua in the Bible? 
to show how Yahweh's promises to Israel were fulfilled in giving them the promised land and to show that Israel failed to fully obey God and possess the land as they were supposed to and ultimately to provide us with a spiritual lesson. And this is the lesson. God's people can overcome the world and take possession of their promised spiritual inheritance for us, our sanctification, provided only they trust God's strength, they believe his promises and obey his commands. You can displace the Anakim in your life by believing God and what he said he will do in clearing your life of the enemies of his. Joshua takes over from Moses at the age of 90, and Joshua's mission is very simple, twofold, destroy the Canaanites, the armies of the Canaanite alliances, which mean that each of the cities now are going to be fighting individually and have no way of standing against two million Israelites. Some people are troubled by the fact that God told Joshua to kill all the inhabitants of Canaan. I like what one Old Testament writer says. He says, Yahweh was removing a cancerous growth from the human race, and the nation of Israel was simply the scalpel in the hand of the God of the universe. Destroy the Canaanites and conquer, divide, and dwell in the land of Canaan. In seven years, the Canaanite armies are destroyed, the ability of the population to defend itself is broken, and the land is left ready for Israel. Joshua challenges them to possess the land, and then he divides the land up among the 12 tribes. A couple of notes about the division of the land that you see on the overhead or on the screen. You'll notice that Simeon is not given its own land. It's only given cities in Judah because of a sin in the days of the patriarchs. Levi gets no portion because of the same incident, but they're Levitical cities and they're given to God as their portion, as his portion. Joseph gets a double portion, so his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, both get portions in the land. But tragically, wherever they went, the children of Israel failed to do what God had commanded. After the back of the Canaanites was broken, they were supposed to go in and slowly and gradually drive out the inhabitants of each of their regions. And none of them did that successfully. Joshua then dies. We read this in Joshua 24, verse 31. Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who survived Joshua and those who had known all the deeds which the Lord had done for Israel. Sad thing, isn't it? The next generation did not serve God. What a terrible warning for us as parents. The second generation. At some point, shortly thereafter, Israel turns from her God and enters the darkest period in Old Testament history, the period of the Judges. This is covered for us in the books of Judges and Ruth. It began in 1390 with the end of the division of the land, and this period runs all the way to 1051 when the monarchy is formed and Saul becomes Israel's first king. This is the period of the judges. Here's how to describe that period. 
essentially the two major issues, there was no national leader and there was no central government. The result, it's put this way in several places in Judges. Judges 17.6 is one of them. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. Every tribe did what it wanted, and even every clan within the tribe did what it wanted as well. No central government. Instead, each tribe formed its own government, and these tribes were often at war with each other. No king. Everybody does what's right in his own eyes. There was widespread apostasy and degeneracy, which brought a cycle of judgment. Why is judges in the Bible? Essentially, it surveys Israel's history from the death of Joshua to the days of Samuel, and it serves as an apologetic to Israel of why she needed a national ruler or leader, a king. Before judges, you had Moses and you had Joshua, national leaders. And after the judges, you have kings, national leaders. When you had no king, when you had no national leader, when you had no central government, it was the darkest time in Israel's history. A brief outline of Judges. You can see that there is a sort of selected history in the center of this of the various Judges. And the end of the book of Judges, in the epilogue, as I've called it here, in chapter 17 to 21, you see two gross and tragic examples. One of the religious apostasy of the nation, her idolatry, and the other of the moral decay when the, Levite, the Levite's concubine and the slaughter of Benjamin, two terrible incidents that show just how far Israel had sunk. If you want to get a sense of the period of the judges, hold your nose and read those passages. It's how far, how deep the nation had gone. There were two tragic sins that characterized the period of the judges. Because Israel failed to drive out and destroy the Canaanites, two sins would dog them the rest of her history as a nation. Intermarriage and idolatry. And she was particularly susceptible, Israel was, to Canaanite religion, the religion that was in the land, the people that she failed to drive out. She intermarried, the people of Israel intermarried with the people and developed a fascination with Canaanite religion. Its main gods were El, Asherah, and Baal. Their worship is called Baal worship because he was the primary god or lord, the lord of the storm and the rain. Their places of worship were elaborate temples, but there was no no single central sanctuary, so you could worship Baal anywhere. Originally, you did it on hills or high places, and then usually at each of those spots, a pillar or a pole or some other symbol marked the sites, and you see that as you read through the Old Testament. Their worship was especially sexually centered and particularly exhibitionist. And I'll say this in as vague a terms as I can, but essentially Baal and Asherah were regarded as voyeur deities whose own libidos were excited by viewing orgiastic rites or sacrificial acts of brutality or bloodletting. They were on raised platforms, the worshipers were, so the deities could get a better view. The prescribed worship 
involved sacrifices, religious prostitution, and child sacrifice on occasion. It was a terrible, awful religion that infected the people of Israel for most of her history, in fact, until the Babylonian captivity when she was purged of it once and for all. You say, well, what was the appeal of such a gross kind of idolatry? Well, it's really the inherent appeal of all idolatry. Two basic appeals, self-centered gratification and self-rule. Self-centered gratification taking various forms, violence and brutality, sexual fulfillment, financial prosperity. Remember, Baal was the god of storms. They lived in an agricultural society. So being in, being in good with the god of storms was good for your crops. Self-centered gratification and self-rule. If you look at Jeremiah chapter 5, you discover that idolatry is always connected to hard-hearted self-will. To rely on idols is in reality to rely upon yourself instead of God. That's the appeal. I can make my own rules. I can adopt my own God, the one I like, the one whose rules I like. Romans 1.21 says the person who pursues idolatry has first made a deliberate choice. So, because of intermarriage and because of idolatry, because of no king, there was a cycle that set in in Israel. This was always the cycle of the judges. There was sin, there was suffering of the people, the, the oppression that came from outside entities. There was the supplication of the people saying, God, deliver us, and God sent salvation through a judge. In grace, God raises up local deliverers to protect individual cities and tribes from attack. Remember, these are not national judges. These are local, regional, or tribal judges. When you look at the judges of Israel, and again, I don't expect you to get all of that. You can see the major ones I've put in bold there in the fourth column. What I want you to notice, though, is that the years of oppression, as you go down this chart, increase, and the years of freedom decrease. There is a pattern that sets in where it gets, there's a downward spiral that occurs. These cycles involve more sin and more suffering and less time of freedom and salvation. Now, there's some overlap, remember, because the judges were local deliverers. But when you look at this, it was a time of awful defeat and decline for the nation. The transition from this period of the judges to the monarchy is in 1 Samuel chapter 1 through chapter 8. Because the last judge and the only national judge is a man named Samuel. When you come to the book of Samuel, there are several things you have to understand. Politically, it is written to record the establishment of the monarchy, to serve as an apologetic from Samuel, explaining why they had one dynasty to begin with, Saul, and then immediately changed dynasties to David. Why did that happen? He defends David and shows that David was not seeking the throne. He was not a conniver pulling the throne away from Saul and Jonathan. Instead, this was God's doing, and he took every measure not to offend or incur into the authority of Saul. 
to record the rise of the prophetic office along with the office of king. Spiritually, 1 Samuel tells us that God alone was the supreme king. Any government had to function under his authority. And theologically, it shows us the need for and points to David's greatest son, the perfect king, Jesus Christ. Essentially, Samuel can be outlined like this. 1 Samuel 1 to 7 is Samuel, Saul is 8 to 15, and David is 16 to 31. Samuel, as a national judge, sets Israel on the path of blessing. But when he grows old, the nation, not anxious to go back into the period of the judges, demands a king. It's important to understand that God had already promised to give Israel a human king. Several places you see that. The Pentateuch indicated that there would someday be a human king. Deuteronomy gives instructions for how the kings were to rule in Deuteronomy 17. Yahweh even commanded Samuel to give them a king. So why was it wrong? Why was it sinful, as they're told? Because they demanded a king prematurely without divine consultation. Because they desired a king for the wrong reason. They wanted to be like all the other nations. Because they chose a king based on all the wrong criteria. And it was, in essence, God himself says, a rejection of himself as their king. Samuel says, look, if you get a king, here's what you're going to get. Here's what comes with the package. You're going to get a military draft. You're going to get conscription of servants for the court. You're going to get confiscation of large parcels of land, heavy taxation to pay for the bureaucracy, the loss of personal property, and oppression. That's what you can expect with kings. But they got them because this was God's plan and purpose. But understand that even though Israel had kings from this point forward, Yahweh was always king in Israel. The human kings were not autonomous. They were under the law of God. In fact, Deuteronomy 17 said they had to make their own copy of God's law and read it every day. They were accountable as well to a new spiritual leader that arrives on the scene, one called the prophet. Samuel was the first, but there were many to follow who kept the kings spiritually in line. They were burrs under the saddle of Israel's kings, reminding them that they were not autonomous, that they lived and ruled under God. Now, before we leave the period of the judges, there's one other thing to consider, and that's Ruth, because the narrative that occurs in Ruth occurs during the period of the time of the judges over about a 10-year period, somewhere, we don't know when, somewhere during that dark time in Israel's history. I end here because this is where hope and grace comes in. During that darkest period in Israel's history, we find Ruth, a Moabitess, coming in and becoming part of the people of God. There's a great story there, and we don't have time to look at it, but let me just give you the significance of Ruth. Why is Ruth in the Bible? Number one, to encourage God's people to remain loyal to him even during the worst of times, the times of unfaithfulness. Stay loyal. Naomi's husband and her family did not. They moved contrary to the will and purpose of God out of Israel to Moab and she buried her husband. She buried the rest of her family, and moves back to the land with only her daughter-in-law. 
Remain loyal to God even during times of unfaithfulness. Secondly, Ruth is there to trace the genealogy of David. This is amazing to me. Read the New Testament and you discover that Ruth, the Moabitess, was his great-grandmother. She was in the line of Jesus Christ. But Ruth is there, I think, maybe most of all, to show the redeeming work of God even during the darkest time of Israel's history. God is always at work to redeem for himself out of humanity a people for his own. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part four of his series titled An Aerial View of the Old Testament. Tom will continue with part five on our next program, and we hope you'll join us then. Well, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And be sure to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do that by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.